What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we are going over basic training and nutrition terms. Essentially, if you've arrived at my page and you're kind of a little bit overwhelmed with some of the terminology, where is somewhere you could go to get at least a rapid fire breakdown of some of these terms? This is going to be that podcast. And while I was um, while I was making the list of these terms that I wanted to go over, I realized, yeah, I probably do have a podcast on every single one of these topics that goes in a bit more depth. If you were looking for a one-stop shop for a rapid fire breakdown, quick breakdown of some of these nutrition and training terms so that you could go on to the rest of my content and other people's content and kind of have a better foundational understanding of those terms, this is hopefully going to accomplish that. And so we've broken it down into nutrition terms and training terms, and I put up a Q&A box a week or two ago and had a, had people kind of uh, submit words that they wanted me to go over or terms they wanted me to define and so thank you for that. I've left out some of the really complex ones that either deserve their own podcast or already have their own podcast. And I kept it to things that we could, you know, kind of go over in a couple of sentences. And so we're going to go over something like 20, 30 terms here today, maybe 15 or so in the training realm and 15 or so in the nutrition realm. And so let's jump into it. First term is what is a calorie, right? A calorie is the amount of energy in the food that you're eating, um, you know, one calorie, technically speaking here, one calorie is the amount of energy required to heat one kilogram of water by one degree. Like that is, uh, who gives a shit about that necessarily? That definition, a calorie is the amount of energy in a food. Um, to be a bit more thorough, how do we know this? How do we know how many calories are in food? We use something that's called a bomb calorimeter, which is essentially measures this whole water temperature situation. Um, I believe I might be butchering this, but I believe we put the food in some sort of packaging, then put it in the water, and then heat up that water until the food is gone, uh, and then record the rise in, in like the external water temperature to determine the amount of calories that was in the food that has now kind of been transferred into heat in the water. So whatever, maybe that's helpful. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you just want to remember that calories are a unit of energy, basically the energy that we extract from the food. What is a macro? A macro is a short for macronutrient. Uh, the three macronutrients, the three main macronutrients are carbs, fats, and proteins. I say main macronutrients because kind of colloquially, we, we kind of maybe refer to alcohol as the fourth macronutrient, but whatever. Let's say for short now, we have carbs, fats, and proteins are the three macronutrients. Why the word macro versus, let's say, a micronutrient? Um, they're needed in relatively larger amounts than other nutrients, hence the term macro. And micronutrients would be the same thing, but with things that we need in technically a lower amount, uh, vitamins and minerals, stuff like that. What is maintenance calories or metabolism? And I'll tell you kind of why I put those two together in a second. Your metabolism is made up of four components. Basically, the amount of calories you burn in a day is broken down into four components. One is your BMR, which is basically the calories that your body burns just keeping the lights on, organ function. It's basically if you laid down in bed and didn't move at all all day, how many calories would you burn just being alive? That's your BMR. Then we have NEAT, EAT, and thermic effective food. NEAT stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which just means subconscious movement or non-exercise movement. So all the movements, you can see me if you're on YouTube, talking with my hands, moving my head, kind of shifting my body weight, all, you know, even just... Right, talking, whatever, tapping your foot, bobbing your head to music, like all of those non-exercise movements, those calories go into NEAT. And then we have EAT, which is exercise activity thermogenesis, which is all the calories you burn in direct exercise. And then we have thermic effective feeding, which just means as your body digests food, it burns off calories. Basically, the digestion process costs calories. 
And so how many calories are we burning in the digestion process? This is mostly relevant when we talk about protein. Protein has the highest thermic effect of food. Basically, when you eat protein, we burn off about 30% of those calories in the digestion process, which is one of the small benefits of eating a slightly higher protein diet. Anything else on that? Um, yeah, and so your metabolism is basically how many calories you burn in a day between those four components. And so I say maintenance calories because maintenance calories is how many calories you'd have to eat in a day on average to maintain your body weight, which would be equivalent to the amount of calories that you burn per day. And so the amount of calories you burn per day is gonna be the same as the amount of calories you'd have to eat to maintain your body weight. Hopefully that's clear. If I'm burning 2000 calories a day, then my maintenance calories in order to maintain my body weight is also going to be 2,000 calories because those two things, the calories in and the calories out, need to be equivalent if we are going to maintain our body weight. Cool. What is a calorie deficit? A calorie deficit is when you burn more calories than you take in. In order for your body to maintain proper function, it's going to get that energy from somewhere. And so if I my maintenance calories is 2,000 and I eat 1,500, that's a 500 calorie deficit. Now my body is going to find those 500 calories somewhere. It's going to get those calories. It needs that energy. And so it's going to, instead of taking it from external sources, which we're not giving it, it's gonna take it from our body. Some combination of um, stored body fat and muscle and whatever other things, depending on how you organize that. Uh, and so basically calorie deficit is just when you burn more calories than you take in, your body will find, that cal find those calories via body fat mostly, uh, and you will lose that body fat essentially. Calorie surplus, just the opposite of that. When you're eating more calories than you, uh, than you are burning, your body will store some amount of that in body fat, some amount of that via lean body mass. Um, you're basically going to gain weight when you eat more than you burn. What is body recomposition? Just understanding that the composition of your body refers to, let's say, the amount of, uh, you know, the percentage of your body weight that is muscle versus fat versus whatever organs and bones and all that other stuff. And so, to change the composition of your body, usually what people are talking about is changing the composition of your body from a, a certain percentage of fat to a certain greater percentage of muscle, let's say. And so recomposition usually means eating at around maintenance calories where you will build a little bit of muscle and burn a little bit of body fat, which will change that composition of your body from you know, a smaller percentage of, of muscle to a greater percentage of muscle or a, a larger percentage of body fat to a smaller percentage of body fat. Basically, you are eating at maintenance calories, lifting weights, and changing the composition of your body, meaning not necessarily changing what you weigh, but changing what that weight is made up of to ideally in this, in this context, usually more muscle, less fat. So you eat at maintenance calories, you build a little bit of muscle, you burn a little bit of body fat, and you change the composition of your body while not changing what you weigh very much. What is calorie cycling? Calorie cycling kind of just means uh, eating a little bit more on some days and eating a little bit less on other days, understanding that it is your average calorie intake over time that's gonna change or that's gonna lead to a certain change in body weight. If you eat 1,500 calories on one day and 2,500 calories on another day, it's the same as eating 2,000 calories on both days, right? Because you've averaged that much over time anyway. And so usually this is used in some way to kind of you know, whether you want to eat a little bit more on the weekends and a little bit less during the week, you can do that if the calories equate on average to the goal that you have. And so if you are trying to eat, let's say 2000 calories per day, maybe you eat 1800 calories Monday through Friday, and then you have 2500 calories on Saturday and 2500 calories on Sunday, 
I did that math correctly, 200 times five, yep. Okay, so um, you could do that. You could go 1,800 calories for five days and 2,500 calories for two days, and that would be the same as eating 2,000 calories for seven days. And so this idea that you can play with the averages and kind of manipulate your calorie intake, it doesn't need to be um, perfectly linear, perfectly symmetrical on a day-to-day basis. You can eat a little bit more on Sundays, eat a little bit less on other days. I have a whole podcast on this, whether or not it's right for you. I just did an Instagram post about it as well. Just because you can eat a little bit more on other days and eat a little bit less on other days doesn't mean you necessarily should. I think a lot of people would do really well to practice some form of static calorie intake for a little bit and get away from some of that more volatile, super high days, super low days. But at the end of the day, it it does work mathematically. And as long as it works for you and your lifestyle, that's awesome. We're not going to go too deep into it now. Calorie cycling can be amazing, can be super helpful. Um, but I would say that just even the knowledge of the fact that your body fat gain and loss does work on an average is almost more important than actually utilizing it because understanding if you have a slightly higher day you can have a slightly lower day or a slightly lower day you can have a slightly higher day just understanding that each day doesn't decide your progress and that it does really matter on the average over time is by far the most important thing i would take away from calorie cycling um carb cycling Funny enough, it's just not a term you'll ever hear me talk about. Carb cycling really from a body composition, weight loss, muscle gain perspective really doesn't have a big application. It's basically just a fancy way of calorie cycling by upregulating and downregulating carb intake. And so the days that you are eating more calories, let's say, calorie cycling, um, you would do that via carbohydrates. The days where you would eat less calories, you would also take carbohydrates down. And so it's just a form of calorie cycling where carbohydrates are that modulating factor that's going up and down. Um, There might be some and probably is some utility in athletic or endurance training where, you know, cycling your carbs to match a little bit better with the amount or how glycolytic the activity you're doing is. I'm sure that there is some application there, but from a body composition standpoint, muscle building standpoint, general health standpoint, there's really no application. It's really not something that is, in my opinion, is overcomplicated, not necessary for the average person. A refeed. What is a refeed? A refeed is just, I hate this word too almost because it's just not like a, it's just something that we, we give this really simple thing, a word that makes it sound fancy when in reality, it's just eat a couple of days of eating at maintenance so that you feel better during your deficit. So during your deficit, you might start to not feel very good and you might take a refeed day or two days or three days which just means a couple days at maintenance calories so that you can feel good and ha- you know have an enjoyable couple days. Like I'm having trouble finding a definition in my brain because it's just not a complex thing. It's a couple days at maintenance during your deficit. It's a really small diet break, which we'll talk about in a second. You know, a long time ago, maybe in just a couple of years ago, and maybe some of you listening to this, we used to think that refeeds had some real physiological lasting benefit. So you might have three consecutive days of high carb eating and it would you know, boost your leptin levels and some of those satiety hormones and it would make dieting on the back end of that easier. I think that that's been pretty debunked. That doesn't mean that refeeds or diet breaks like we'll talk about in a second don't have any utility, but it's really just gonna come down to whether or not taking a few days out to maintenance is helpful for you um, and makes you feel good mostly psychologically, gives you a psychological break. The physiological benefits of a couple days at maintenance or even a week at maintenance, like we'll talk about in a second, aren't really strong, don't really have any lasting benefits. It's not complicated. If you're in the middle of a deficit and taking a couple days at maintenance or a week at maintenance makes you feel good mentally so that you can push on again afterwards, that's awesome. So a diet break is just 
a one to two week break at maintenance in the midst of a deficit phase. Again, the physiological side of things not really has doesn't really have a big physiological upside. It's not like at the end of those two weeks, you'll feel good as new again and you can deficit again for another eight weeks without feeling bad. That's not what's gonna happen. You know, 99 out of 100 times, you're gonna feel really good during your diet break, which again, mentally might be a really good opportunity for you to rest and recharge and recover and get your head right and whatever, you know, drop some fatigue. But when you go back to deficiting, it's not like you're back to square one in terms of feeling really great. I mean, these diet breaks, these refeeds, they don't, they don't clean the slate in terms of diet fatigue. They don't buy you another eight weeks before you feel like crap again. They're just a nice mental. It's like running a marathon, man. These breaks are just, they're like little water stops. It's like, it's not like when you, you know, let's say you're running a marathon, you stop and you get a sip of water. It's not like when you're done with that sip of water, you start running again. You're like, wow, I feel great. I could run another marathon. It's like, no, you, you go kind of right back to feeling the way you were feeling before the water break, but the water break might still be a nice opportunity for you to kind of rest and recover, recharge, you know, plug back in. Cool, next is reverse diet. P.S., everything we've talked about so far, maintenance calories, metabolism, macros, uh, body recomposition, calorie cycling, refeeds, diet breaks, they all have their own podcast. So if you just search, you can go to the RSS website and you can search my podcast via keyword, or you can just scroll through the podcast. There's only 100 episodes. And if you see something that catches your eye, some of these topics, um, I know the reverse diet episode that we're about to go over is uh, episode 17. And so once we go over reverse dieting, if you're intrigued, go ahead and find that episode. So a reverse diet is, again, another one of these like fancy words that we've given to something to make it sound uh, super complex. It's really not. A reverse diet is just simply the process of going from your, from your deficit calories back to your maintenance calories. Again, I have a whole podcast on this, episode 17. I'll link it in the description. It's a little bit easier. Um, but again, like the TLDR here is like this process doesn't need to be super slow. I think... You know, in the early 2000s, we were like big on this like really super slow reverse diet. It's like when you're coming out of your deficit, you need to add 50 calories a week so that you, you know, uh, don't overshoot so you can boost your metabolism. Most of that has been completely debunked. There is no reason to be going extremely slow from deficit back to maintenance calories. Now, there is some discussion of if your maintenance calories is slightly suppressed from metabolic adaptation, which we'll go into in a second. But at the end of the day, the reverse diet doesn't need to be unnecessarily slow. This is mostly a fancy kind of nebulous term that just means go back to maintenance calories. Like there's a calorie deficit phase and then there's a maintenance phase. And whatever the time is between those two where you go from your deficit to your maintenance calories, that is called your reverse diet. And you should really be doing this as fast as possible. That doesn't mean always doing it immediately and just fucking snapping right back to maintenance. But it definitely doesn't mean this 50 calorie week bullshit because of, you know, of some metabolic hacking that's going on. There isn't any of that going on. Let's do uh, metabolic adaptation. So I have a podcast with Alan Aragon that I think if you're interested in this topic goes way more in depth than we're going to go into now. Um, but to kind of summarize this a bit more simply is like your body wants to remain at homeostasis, wants to remain where it is right now as you're listening to this podcast. And so if you give your body less food, your body thinks, let's say you go into a calorie deficit, right? You give your body less food. Your body kind of recognizes that as, you know, I'm starving to death, right? Some microcosm of starvation. And it doesn't want to lose body weight. It wants to stay exactly where it is right now. And so when you give your body less food, it will adapt to that calorie deficit, that deficit of calories by down-regulating, decreasing the calories that you burn so that you can remain at calorie maintenance. And so when you give your body less food, your body downregulates metabolism so that you remain where you are. If you give your body more food, your body upregulates metabolism so that you remain where you are. Now, everybody listening to this knows that 
people still lose and gain weight. And so this metabolic adaptation is not stopping anybody from losing or gaining weight, right? We have a, we're in a bit of an uh, obesity epidemic. And so it's not exactly the fact that metabolic adaptation is stopping anybody from gaining weight. We can manually override, it's the term I would use. We can manually override or we can overpower this metabolic adaptation. It just means that as you lose weight and you stay in a deficit longer, you might see things plateau and adjustments will need to be made. Sometimes as you start to lose weight and you are now in a smaller body, which requires less calories, and your body has downregulated some of your subconscious movement, that what was once a deficit might not now be a deficit. Totally normal thing. Metabolic adaptation is not permanent. There is no such thing as metabolic damage. Um, and if there is any amount of permanence to metabolic adaptation, let's say you lose a lot of weight and people are like, oh, my metabolism is damaged now. It's extremely minute. Uh, it is not the grandiose thing that we once thought where you could damage your metabolism. It's not really the case. It's a totally normal thing. Um, you know, this it's unlikely that humans would be here if we didn't have this sort of biological response to less food. It's likely that we would have died off via like a famine at some point. But our ability to decrease the calories we burn in response to a decrease in food availability is super crucial to our survival last, you know, whatever million years. Um, anything else on this? Yeah, it happens in both directions. If you eat more food, your body does burn more calories. Um, obviously, as you gain weight and you are a larger body, you will burn more calories. But also, as you eat more calories, your body will naturally upregulate subconscious movement. You'll tap your feet more. You'll talk more with your hands. You'll you know, you know, bob to music more, you'll have a more natural proclivity to want to get up and move. You know, it's like if you looked at, you know, a good example sometimes is if we look at competitors who are like physique ready to get on the stage. They are so lean and they have a lot of this metabolic adaptation. And if you ask them, a lot of them will report that they're feeling very like not just lethargic, but they talk less and they move their head less and they move their hands less and they blink slower and they are less likely to want to get up and go get the remote from the couch over there. They are just, their body is doing everything they can to get them to move less, to burn less calories because they have less calories available because obviously they're trying to get super lean. So if that was helpful at all, I hope so. If not, there's a podcast with Alan Aragon where we talk all things metabolic adaptation. Is it permanent? How do we know it's not permanent? What is actually happening? All of that good stuff. I will link that in the description as well. We'll do that in the reverse dieting podcast and maybe some other stuff. All right, 18 minutes in, we're halfway home here. We're gonna move into some of the training definitions or training terms here. We'll go over hypertrophy, mesocycle, deload, tempo, all that stuff. Oof, we got quite a bit here. So let's see how we do. All right, first training term we're gonna go over is hypertrophy. The word hypertrophy just means to grow a certain tissue in the body. In this context, we're obviously talking about the type of training geared towards increasing muscle tissue size. And so hypertrophy means muscle building, let's say. That's the kind of, that's that's what you're gonna hear on my page. That's what we're gonna to refer to it in, in, in uh, terms of what you hear here. Um, cool, mesocycle. A mesocycle is just a training program or training block uh, usually about four to eight weeks where you're doing the same shit trying to progress, like doing the same stuff week to week, trying to progress on the same program. When I say we're starting a new mesocycle in my group, that just means we are changing certain things about the program and we are going to move into a new four to eight week training block or mesocycle where we are doing a new program week to week trying to progress. A deload, I have a whole podcast, episode 100, I think it's a couple episodes ago. It is an update to a long time ago deload podcast that I think would be really helpful. Um, but long, the long and short of it is after about four to eight weeks of training really hard, you're carrying quite a bit of fatigue. 
and we need to deload to kind of drop some of that training stress, drop some of that fatigue, resensitize to the stimulus at hand, and then we can get back to it. Think of a deload as like a one-week break of caffeine every four to eight weeks. It's like you're taking in a lot of caffeine, you're building up a sense of, uh, you're building up some, uh, you are desensitized to caffeine over time, you're building up a tolerance, that's the word I was looking for. You're building up a tolerance, and every so often we have to kind of take, again, whether we do we do that with caffeine or not is another story, but just understanding this idea of, you know, building up a tolerance to something and then taking a break so that we can resensitize. It's the, it's the same with a consistent training stimulus. Every so often we do need to take a step back, resensitize for our best gains. Tempo. Tempo is the cadence with which you are lifting. This can be a variable that we change within training programs uh, within certain exercises for different goals. And so the tempo has a four number or four part component. We have an eccentric phase, all of which we'll go over in a second. An eccentric phase, we have a pause in the lengthened position. Then we have a concentric phase. Then we have a pause in the short position. So what is the eccentric phase? The eccentric phase is the phase of the lift where the target muscle is being lengthened or stretched i.e. the way down in an RDL or the way down in a push-up where those muscles in the RDL where you're having your, you know, your glutes and your hams uh, lengthened or stretched on the way down, that is the eccentric phase. The concentric phase is the phase of the lift where the muscle is shortening or contracting or squeezing, whatever terminology really helps for you. You know, the way up in a glute bridge is the concentric phase. The way up in a bicep curl is the concentric phase. Where people get tripped up is you can't always use the like up and down, right? It's not like eccentric is always the way down and the concentric is always the way up. And, and what I'll say is like, imagine we're doing a leg extension. The concentric will be the way up. As you are kicking your legs and, and extending your, your knee, that is the concentric phase. You are squeezing your quad, you are shortening your quad, you are flexing your quad, whatever words help you. That way up is the concentric phase. But if we look at a lat pull down, and we think of the way up, the way up is letting your arms go up. Well, the way up in a lat pull down is actually the eccentric phase, because as you are letting that bar go up, you are stretching, you are lengthening the muscles in your back and some of the elbow flexors, et cetera. And so we can't always use up and down. Sometimes it does work that way, but when we're using cables, sometimes it's kind of the inverse. And so it is helpful to kind of understand that the eccentric phase, you can think of that as the stretching phase. The concentric phase, you can think of that as the contracting or squeezing phase. And so let's talk about the lengthened and shortened position. You know, we'll keep, keep it super basic here. Muscles attached to the body in at least two points. They have an origin and an insertion point. Um, and as a muscle contracts, what's going to happen is it's going to bring those two points, origin and insertion, closer together. And so as those two things get closer together, we call that the muscle shortening. As those two points get further apart, we call that the muscle lengthening. Um as you contract a muscle, it becomes shorter. As you uh, stretch a muscle, it becomes more lengthened. I think that those are kind of words that we can kind of uh, compute in our brain for sure. Uh, putting tension, like why does this matter? Like putting tension on the muscle at those two different points. And so if you're putting real high quality, high amount of tension in the short position when that muscle is contracted, that's gonna produce a different result in terms of uh, comparing to an exercise that is really stressing that more lengthened position. So it does kind of matter for us to have a general understanding. You know, an RDL really stretches the glutes and really lengthens the hams or really challenges the glutes and the hams in, in, in their more lengthened position. When the, like, what is the hardest part of the RDL? It is the bottom position. What is the hardest part of a glute bridge? It is the top position where the glutes are contracted. And so we can understand, okay, where 
where is the RDL hardest? Well, it's hardest in the lengthened position at the bottom. Where is the glute bridge the hardest? So it's hardest at the short position in the top. And so again, that's not necessarily something everybody needs to be focused on, but it does kind of go into this whole discussion of like tempo and then lengthened and shortened position and then resistance curve, which is what we'll talk about in a second here. And so what is a resistance curve? It just talks about what part of the exercise is hardest. Like if we look at an exercise like a hack squat or a bicep curl or a lateral raise, when we're talking about resistance curve, we're just answering the question, what part of the exercise is the hardest? Where is this exercise hard? Where is it easy? And if we look at a squat, the resistance curve of a squat is very biased towards the bottom or lengthened position. If we look at the resistance curve of a lateral raise, it is very hard at the top or the shortened position and very easy at the bottom in the more lengthened position. Again, it's helpful to understand where the exercise is hardest because like we said, training muscles in different places or lengths has different effects that we can use for different goals. Next, we have intensity. I think for hypertrophy um, pursuits, relative intensity is a bit more of a helpful term. Intensity normally just means the amount of weight you're using, maybe even a percent of your 1RM, but I still think that would even be relative intensity. Um, but relative intensity is a term that we will uh, be more focused on in terms of hypertrophy because the question that we need to answer is how hard is this thing you should be doing? A lot of people will kind of come into my group sometimes and they've never used RIR before, which we'll go over in a second. And they're like, well, I, you know, it's too complicated to use RIR. Like, first of all, it's not. Second of all, we need to answer the question, how hard should this be? Like just telling somebody, hey, you're gonna do three by 10 overhead press. That doesn't tell them how hard it should be. They need to know how hard it should be. And the answer is not going to failure every single set. The answer is not as hard as possible every single set. And so on that note, what is failure? We'll talk about RIR in a second. Failure could have a few definitions depending on how we are defining it in what context, but usually the most important one to discuss or utilize is technical failure, meaning when you can no longer do any more reps with proper technique at the prescribed tempo. And so normally failure is like when you can no longer do a good rep with good technique. And so that doesn't mean like, you know, doing lateral raises until with good technique. And then when you can't do it with good technique, you just start humping the air and flinging them up. Like, no, 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 that is going beyond technical failure. That is beginning to use a lot of body English and momentum. And that would be beyond technical failure. What is RIR? Well, RIR stands for reps in reserve. Again, in training, we need a way to answer this question of how hard should this set be? And so some people use RPE, which is rating of perceived exertion, which is just a subjective one to 10 scale of difficulty. If you tell me it was an RPE 10, that probably means it was the hardest thing you could possibly do. In the, on the flip side, what we use, I prefer to use in hypertrophy is RIR, which means reps in reserve, which just basically is defined as how many more reps could you have done when you finished the set. And so let's say you do a set of 10 and you really could have gone to head, gotten 12, that would be an RIR of two. If you do 10 and you gun to head, could have done 10 and that was it, you reached technical failure on that 10th rep, that would be an RIR of zero. RIR, RPE basically just flipped the number on its head and RPE of 10 is the same as an RIR of zero. Uh, both totally fine, but I do find that for hypertrophy circumstances, RIR is a bit more specific to what we're looking to do. Next one is volume. Volume is just the how much component. If we think of intensity or relative intensity as the how hard component, Volume is the how much component, and we can use it in many different contexts in terms of time scales. We could be talking about per session volume, per week volume, per mesocycle volume. And so again, it does um, 
it does require a like time scale component. It's like, okay, how much volume should I do what, per session, like per week, per mesocycle, per muscle group? And so we are need to kind of, it, it, volume means how much. And then I need to know how much of what in when, right? A decent way to quantify volume, not a perfect way, not the most detailed way is to quantify it as number of hard sets. Next is metabolic training. What is metabolic training? Really simply put, metabolic training, and we're gonna compare it to hypertrophy, where hypertrophy, the goal is to build muscle tissue size. Metabolic training is training for the goal of whole body conditioning or local muscle conditioning, right? As opposed to hypertrophy. You're not gonna go super deep into what whole body and local muscle conditioning are. I have a podcast, it's titled Intro to Periodization, if you are interested in it. But metabolic training is just either training for whole body conditioning or local muscle conditioning as opposed to having the main goal of actually building muscle. Um, it doesn't make it bad. It, it is something we will use at some point in hypertrophy. If you're interested in that stuff, there is a podcast on periodization. Cool. Next one is superset. What is a superset? A superset is just two exercises done together, two exercises done together before resting a little bit longer and starting again. Basically, it's a two exercise circuit. Um, you know, it's not... It's not always the case that you're gonna do the first exercise and then immediately into the second exercise, but that is kind of generally the way it's used often, um, but that isn't a rule that you must follow. You could have a little bit of rest between the two exercises. But an example would be like doing a set of bicep curls, supersetted, meaning going immediately into a set of tricep pushdowns and then resting for two minutes and then repeating that two-part circuit and then resting two minutes and doing those two exercises kind of back to back. A drop set is, a, you know, these are all in, in the bucket of what we call intensity techniques. Um, a drop set is basically where you just do a set and then instead of resting and doing another set, you make something easier about the set and you keep going, right? Whether that's a change in tempo, a change in the, you know, the mechanics of the exercise in the, in the change of your body position or just a drop in load. And I think it's important for us to compare these things, superset, drop set, myo reps that we're gonna talk about in a second to a straight set. A straight set would just be, let's say doing a set of eight uh, leg presses and then resting two to three minutes and then another set of leg presses and then resting two to three minutes and then another set of leg presses where you were doing one exercise several times straight in a row before moving on to the next exercise. And that's probably gonna be your bread and butter kind of set and uh, set technique for hypertrophy, uh, probably for most goals, is going to be mostly straight sets where you're focusing on doing one thing at a time. Again, supersets is kind of breaks that rule where you're doing two things at a time and then resting. A drop set, again, kind of breaks that rule. Instead of doing one thing and then resting and then doing it again, you're doing a set of, let's say, leg presses, and then you are dropping some form of either load or tempo where you are making the exercise easier so that you can keep going instead of resting a long time and then doing it again. And so again, you can do that via a change in tempo. Maybe you do uh, lateral raises with a pause at the top, which is very hard. And then when you can no longer do reps with a pause at the top, instead of resting and doing that again, you eliminate the pause, which makes the exercise easier and you can continue to do more reps. And we're not gonna talk about when you might use this it's a conversation for another day. Um, yeah, another common one for a drop set is to just drop the load. It's like, let's say you do a lateral raise with a set of 15s. And then when you can't do it with 15s, you drop the 15s and grab a pair of 10s and guess what? You could do more lateral raises. And so that's like kind of a very traditional drop set. Myo reps. So myo reps are different than drop sets because you're not actually, inst instead of going immediately into something easier, you are resting a little bit and doing the same thing again. And so a myo rep 
or myo sets or the use of my reps myo sets would be, let's say you're doing a set of leg presses, you get eight reps, you get very close to failure. And then instead of a drop set where you would go immediately into a lighter set of leg press, maybe you take a plate off each side and then you keep going, a myo rep or myo sets would be you stopping 10, maybe five to 15 seconds and then doing another couple of really hard reps. And so you might do a set of eight, rest 15 seconds, and then you know, you're obviously very fatigued from those set of eight, and you've only rested 15 seconds. And then you do a couple more reps, really high quality, close to failure reps. And you might do that several times, you know, one to four times in addition to that original set of eight, let's say. Um, cool. What does burning fat for fuel mean? Um, when we have the like this like what am what sort of fuel source am I burning? What we're talking about is is what we call let's say substrate utilization. It just means what fuel am I using to accomplish a task? And so I'm standing here with a relatively low heart rate, talking to you guys, doing this podcast. My body's burning mostly fat. Um, and, and, and not to go too in depth to this, but the fuel that you're using has literally nothing to do with the gain and loss of body fat because the fuel that you're using does not. Uh, does not matter. What matters is calorie balance over time. So I might be burning fat for fuel right now, primarily because I'm not doing a very intense exercise. I'm standing here, but that does not equate to the loss of body fat. The loss of body fat means being in a calorie deficit. The fuel that you're using isn't really important. It's like, imagine imagine you're driving your car and the human car analogy always kills me because like it's not always like perfect, but it does work in this, in this instance. It's like it, substrate utilization is whether you put in gasoline or, you know, premium or unleaded or, you know, and, and that actually doesn't actually work because those two things are actually different. But let's assume that you had black gasoline and white gasoline and they did the exact same thing, but one was black and one was white. It's like you are more concerned with how empty your gas tank is than which fuel is in it. Which fuel are you burning is less important than how much fuel I have left. And so, or, you know, what the deficit of fuel is like. And so for this sort of context where people are like, oh, you turn into a fat burning machine or, you know, when you go keto, you burn a whole lot more fat. That is true. You burn a whole lot more fat when you go keto because you're eating a lot more fat. And the, the, the substrate that you are utilizing for activities has nothing to do with the calorie balance, right? And if you're burning more fat, you're probably also storing more fat. If you're eating more fat, let's say if you're eating more fat, you are burning more fat but you're also storing more fat. And it is, it is the net balance between the two that is going to decide if you're gaining or losing body fat. All right, last two, we have training split. It's just how you split up the muscles across the week. Are you doing a full body split, body part split, upper lower split? It's just how you are splitting up the, the muscles on the body across your training week. And the last one is progressive overload. I, I like to think of this as like the word progressive just means let's say over time and overload means do more. So progressive overload means over time, do more. You know, you need to push your body to a certain limit. You need to push it past homeostasis, or you need to push homeostasis to grow. And as you get stronger, that threshold for adaptation goes up because you're stronger now, and you'll have to do more to keep telling your body to adapt. And you can do more in several different ways, you know, uh, doing more week to week. There are a lot of different ways. You could do more reps, you could do more sets, you could do more, you know, slower tempo, you can add a pause, you could do, um, you could, you could realistically, you could just have better technique, uh, you could add more weight, um, you could shorten the rest time. These are all technically ways of that you could progressively overload or do more week to week. But what I will say is that over the course of your training career, you will use rep 
and load increases as your primary forms of progression. You're not adding sets every week. You're probably not decreasing rest every week. You're probably not just improving technique every week. You're probably not, you know, slowing down the tempo every week. Now you will use those the best programming will probably have, probably have some of those throughout the programming, but doing more reps and doing a little bit more load are going to be the two that you lean most heavily on. Okay, so that is the end of the podcast. If I missed any terms, you guys free to DM me. Maybe I'll do another one of these in the future. Uh, maybe we can go a little bit more in depth on the training side or on the nutrition side instead of doing them together. That is one idea. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for coming. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.